You are listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. This time around, we are wrapping up finally our look at the Twilight Saga with the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. This was originally released in 2012, directed by Bill Condon, screenplay by Melissa Rosenberg. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. <laughs> yeah, the, the infamous laugh in the film we'll certainly get to. And uh, Alex Miller. I dare say, fellow Droogies, I've seen Chrissy Stustu and Bobby Pats before, but I do feel like I was tall chomped <laughs> in me Gulliver after watching this on my televoo. Like we're going. So are, you, are you saying that this film series has driven you to the old ultraviolence? I think it may well have done so, for its very lack of violence has made me all wimbly bimbly upstairs. I have to say, I've been I've been pretty hard on the series, but this one I actually sort of like. I think because stuff actually happens. Like I, when I first saw this, my wife and I skipped over Breaking Dawn Part One. It felt like we missed nothing. And having watched that film last week, I would I would tend to agree. Um, and and this sort of seems like stuff stuff is coming to a head. Stuff happens. Like you could have had the first movie and then cut right to this one. And I think I don't think you would have missed much of consequence. I'll go farther. Okay. I think you could have compressed all the movies before this one into one, maybe two movies at most, and yeah, then yeah. done this. Yeah, there's two. There are two movies. Uh, there are like two. There's enough meat on these five, four films to be two movies, like two solid movies. If you actually pruned it back, you would have two semi-effective movies, I think. But I mean, that's a lot of meat to cut there. It is, but a lot of it's just people staring at each other, or, or more importantly, Bella and and uh, Edward hemming and hawing, to to make the decision that you know becomes obvious. Obviously, she's going to get knocked up and and have a vampire human kid, and there will be consequences. Oh yeah, fucking Res Jezamel or whatever her fucking name is. Right. I mean, it's like <laughs> you know, in some ways, overall, the series never has a scene as brilliant as the one in Eclipse, where Edward and Jacob are in the sleeping bag together. I think it's sort of a, a piece of comic genius, but um, oh, yeah. but it, and it kind of self-aware, you know, with the fan base and stuff. And uh, but, but this one, Breaking Dawn Part Two, it, it does feel like it has a lot of that Lord of the Rings like gladiator influence. Like we're going to have people charge at each other on a field. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> lots of drone cams and people getting tossed around, and it doesn't look very good. No, and yeah, Thrasher, what do you think about this film? Kind of first impressions. This this film was seems to exist to respond to every criticism of all the previous films and I'll, even some <laughs> things we talked about, like we talked about the lack of diversity. Well, this movie has all the diversity. We've talked about the lack of action. This movie has all the action. We've talked about the sort of flaccid melodramatic tone. This movie has every possible tone and it hits those tones hard. And Alex, any thoughts? Yeah, this was, um, I think, like like you said, there's so much dead air. There's so much, like, vapid flaccidity that, like, when you actually do ramp up to conflict and action, it feels just so, un not unearned, but, like, it's just the all the excitement's just been pulled out of it because it's, like, fucking four movies in, and it's 
finally get going and after all the stares and boring conversations and walking around the woods and running through the woods and fucking blah 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 it was just such a wet fart of a fucking movie for me yeah you know it's structured but this film is not without its flaws (laughs) that's pretty good yeah um you know i mean it's directed by bill condon who also did breaking uh breaking dawn part one we talked about last time and this one made, you know, $829 million worldwide. Just sit on that for a second. The sixth highest film of uh, 2012 with the uh, worldwide gross. Number one that year in 2012, guess what it is? Something better. The Avengers. Oh, yeah, okay. $1.5 billion, right? That was also the same year as Dark Knight Rises, uh, the first Hobbit film. Those all made above a billion dollars, I just can't believe. Skyfall, which I think is by far the best of the uh, James Bonds with... Um, Daniel Craig, but now I want to talk about James Bond, so I will go back to talking about Twilight. Uh, imagine being the creative team around the Avengers and being like, holy shit, we almost lost to this. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a really busy year. It was kind of, it reminds me of, um, gee, was it like 2008 or 2009, the The Dark Knight came out? And like yeah, that I think film, that was eight or nine. Yeah, eight or nine, and like it ate everyone's lunch, including like the X Men movie sequel that was supposed yeah. to kick off a trilogy, and like just everything just did shit compared to it. But that okay, but that this, doesn't narrow it down because at least four no. X Men films were meant to kick off a trilogy. <laughs> I said, sorry, did I say X Men? I meant X Files. Oh, X Files. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. It was yeah. the one with Finny Con- Philly Connolly, and the just kind of a strange one. And anyhow, but yeah, this this Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn. It has this stuff at the beginning, which I mentioned last week, I thought was in the other film. It all kind of blent together. I made the mistake of watching these back to back and it kind of melted my brain. Yeah. right. And uh, and you have some some good business with uh, Charlie, Bella's father, played by uh, Billy Burke, who is kind of, I think, an MVP in the series that he is often given kind of absurd situations to do. But does, I think, really good character work that perhaps is more subtle than the series deserves. And. Jacob is is trying to, uh, you know, let the clock count down, and and he starts taking his clothes off in front of Charlie <laughs> to say like stuff's pretty weird with your daughter, man. And then he turns into a werewolf, which I don't think makes anything any easier. I'm not. Is I, is he trying to troll him? Is he trying to yeah scare well, him away? I, well, I don't quite get the objective here. Well, I think the objective is so so by that point we're we're going kind of order, out of order. But by that yeah. point in the film, all the vampires know that the Council of Snapes is gonna is coming to kill Bella, Edward, and their daughter, who we haven't even touched on yet. But we'll probably have to cover that next. Oh, fucking Bolingula. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nosferatu, uh, whatever her name is. Uh, but it. But, you called my daughter the Loch Ness monster. so jacob i think jacob's thing is like well bella's father deserves to know what's going on quite possibly because he's had to put up with so much vague nonsense for four movies so yeah he just goes to prove to him that the supernatural exists so he has some context for the conflict that's coming that may very well take his daughter's life but but the the whole setup the way he rushes into it and starts like there's secrets you need to know and he's like taking mm. his clothes off and i love that the sheriff's whole response like put 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 your shirt on jacob <laughs> like, like he like he's so he's both confused and bemused by it and then when jacob just flat out turns into a werewolf proving the existence of the supernatural his resp- his whole response kind of boils down to well, all right 
Yeah, I, I think like I mean, in this trio, we all agree that Billy Burke as Charlie Swan is kind of like we're uh, fan favorites. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. He's routinely no, the he's best great. part of these movies. He, he's yeah, amazing, and and I think right. and the and I think he's also the only character that's allowed to have an inner life, if only because he kind of suffers in silence in the previous film. So you have to read an interior life into the character. But even here, he does this like little thing with his eyes when he looks at, at Jacob transformed into a werewolf and says, "Well, all right," where you can see <laughs> the gears turning, and in in the character's head, he's like, "Oh yeah." The existence of supernatural monsters does explain every weird thing I've ever seen as sheriff in this town. <laughs> right, yeah, because of the earlier movies with the cases of the mauled animals and who's doing it or the dead bodies and stuff. You're, you're right. Um, yeah, I guess we did skip over at the beginning the pretty big part where she wakes up after the the traumatic birth of her child, Renesme, and she has, you know, finished up the human-to-vampire uh transformation and, and Kristen Stewart is good in these movies and I, I love the confidence she projects with her posture and how she moves and how she delivers the dialogue in the vampire form uh, yeah a lot of grace I mean it, it's it's a lot of stuff she's doing that you know might not be obvious when you first watch it but especially watching these movies so close to each other instead of kind of the the kind of skittish uh, neurotic uh, almost like Woody Allen type she was in the other movies like in this one like it's it's pretty cool, and it, you you wish she would have been a vampire sooner. I love it. Like she instantly becomes, she becomes a vampire, and she's instantly healed, instantly beautiful, and her hair has an instant perm and dye job. I know. Yeah, she goes from fucking Dallas Buyers Club to like you know Adonis. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I think the interesting thing here is that if you line these movies up together, and uh, if you look at Kristen Stewart's performance, it's actually her character's arc spelled out through the course of four films when I think people like wrongfully judged her for being a bad actress in the first couple films. Yeah. I was like, actually, I think this is just prolonged character development because she's at her best in this movie. And I think it's corollary with her performance and with her uh, character, but I think it's also just her being a really good actor. And I think she gets the best business to do in this film. So I think that's one of the movie's virtues. It is. And you it, know, it's it not one of the movie's virtues. Uh, uh the, the, the baby. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Oh yeah, fucking Israelia. It's so so here, so here's the deal. I realize, you know, you can't have a baby on a film set for too long, but damn it, since they since the movie has the the, the plot contrivance that the child ages super fast. Yeah. They should have just used a real baby and a real toddler for the handful of scenes that would require one rather yeah. than the animatronic that we blessedly do not see in this movie because it's covered up by CGI. And it is the most bizarre. We photoshopped <laughs> a baby's head onto a doll CGI you have ever seen. Right. I mean, I mean do you think the fucking yeah. baby grows in like fucking cat ears in reverse or something like you're only going to have to photograph it like four minutes of baby footage. I think you can get away with that instead of doing this fucking CGI uncanny valley bullshit nonsense. I mean, having, I mean, we were passing around in, in the chat the, the fo- and you can find it online, the photos <laughs> of the animatronic one, which is quite scary. But I think that at least would have been interesting in something different. Now, how would they have carried forward um, that, that that sort of like. Uh, possessed Marty Feldman look into the the kind of the kind of a grown up child. I'm not really sure, but 
at least, yeah, the, the CG is not quite good enough, especially in full daylight, to pull the baby stuff off. And I, I, I always think back to, uh, was it the Clint Eastwood film with Bradley Cooper? Is that American, oh, American Sniper? Sniper? Yeah, right, where he's where, got like a fucking Cabbage Patch Kid in his yeah, hands. Yeah, the Cabbage Patch Kid, he's shaking and crying and sneezing on <laughs> in, in this dramatic scene. And I think that kind of works because they kind of go for it and it's so quick you don't realize it. Like, they could have used a doll and that would have been just as fine. Also, at any point watching this, when fucking um, Juliovich is, like, fully at her oldest in this, did you ever look at that kid and be like, wow, she bears an uncanny resemblance to that baby in the earlier scenes? Like, it's like you have this crappy Mm. baby. And it's like to no avail, like there's no like benefit to doing that. You know, it's not like they look exactly alike or their eyes match perfectly or something like it's just kind of. Bleh. When it struck me with, with the with these books and with the movies, do you think in some way the, the MTV reality show Teen Moms was an influence? Because there's so much of like the women having children really young when they're in school or whatever. Not that she was a high school student when she got knocked up in this one, but it, I don't know. There's something that sort of strikes me about that. Yeah, I think it was, like, in the conversation. I think it was much uh-huh. more present at the time. What was it, like, 16 and Pregnant? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, some other, there was a couple of fucking those. pretty lame reality shows at the time. I, yeah, I mean, I, I can't, it, it's it's strange. Of course, the, the book was a few years old, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's, sure. it's, it's in the zeitgeist, but the source material, that factor in the source material wasn't. So, I think it's, it's more of just a case of parallel development. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say this. This is the most unrealistic depiction of having a child because they they have this baby and and what happens? Do they raise it? Do they care for it? Do they go through all the right. trials and tribulations of having this this needful thing in their lives? No, they don't. Uh, it's taken care of by their entire family and they are gifted a fuck cabin where <laughs> Bella gets to endure the full force of uh, of Edward's fucking and it's great. They never like. The child is not a factor in their lives. Yeah, we, we don't see fucking Banjovelia until like half hour into the movie. It's like, oh, that thing that killed you? Yeah. Remember? You want to meet your daughter? Also, she, you know, ages and like fucking leaps and lunges. Oh, can we also talk about Jacob fucking rubbing his scent all over a child? Like, what the fuck is that? Well, yeah, remember yeah. there's the stuff about being he imprinted himself or, or something while she was pregnant, right? In the last yeah, he's one. like, I'll I'll hit that in a few but, years. Like, what which, the fuck? You, which you had mentioned, Thrasher, which was creepy, and I certainly agree. But it's even worse when the character is uh, out of the womb. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's and and I realize they want it. They want to make it that big, like dramatic moment where like he sees the the the, the infant and like falls to his knees and is overwhelmed. And it's just like you're 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 making a bad story beat worse. By putting so much emphasis on it, and although yes. it does ironically lead to a huge belly laugh, because the the baby's the baby's name is is Renesme, which is a combination of Esme and Renee, which are Jacob and, and or, or yeah uh, Edward and Bella's like parents, which which sounds like such a 2012 thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it really makes this of its time. So in a in a way that is realistic. But, you know, Jacob, you find out that Jacob in his head calls the child like Nessie. <laughs> and, and and Bella's like, what? You named my daughter after the Loch Ness Monster? 
I, yeah, like, and doesn't she like kick him off the porch? Like, there's some act of violence that happens after it, but like she yes, she sells yeah. the, a line delivery of an awful line, which she it's does so all throughout stupid. the series. But that particular one, why that's not like an animated GIF that that you, people use all the time, I have no idea because it's just such I, perfect absurdity. I had to pause the movie and recover from that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought I was hallucinating. I'm like, she didn't just say that. And I rewound. I'm like, no, that was the dialogue. And then I think I proceeded to watch it 10 more times because it was funnier every time. <laughs> <laughs> it really does get funnier every time. It's like the sideshow Bob and the Rakes. Like once yeah. isn't funny, yes. twice isn't funny. It needs to be like eight times. And it Ten just times, gets better yeah. and better. Well, it, it really, like, it, it just, it, it makes me realize what, what short shrift we got in the other films. The other films really could have used moments like that. Yeah, right is a little bit of camp here which i was like that's kind of what mm-hmm. i was like really looking for with these films instead of yeah. these like just fucking like fucking serious yeah christian level fucking made for tv fucking milk toast bullshit vampire whateverness it's not gothic that's the thing and there you get a little gothic in here and you get a little camp in here a little awareness i think and that makes it a lot of fun um, and I think it, you get that with a Volturi because it's conflict. It's a structured story. It, it is. And you can see why they'd want to go after the, the, the child with all the super. Maybe the child, you know, smells really nice. That was a big deal in the first film of a fella. But it probably well, it's got you know, Jacob all over it. So, yeah, who wouldn't put that, right? <laughs> but well, I mean, as is traditional, the, the child, the child is half human, half vampire and a day walker. So, of course, the ancient vampires have to hate it and want to destroy it. Right. Yeah, and so I like you're moving towards this eventual conflict, and they all got to come together to protect it. But all uh, or her, they're Renesmee. But uh, uh, on top of that, it does feel a bit like me to Harry Potter, because like you're all of a sudden introduced to all these uh, vampire cousins or whatever the hell, um, played by these actors of uh, uh, different people of color. One of whom is Academy Award winning. Uh, what's his name? He was um, Freddie Mercury and uh, Rami Malek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rafi he's like Malik. the fucking airbender vampire, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But oh, it, oh, yeah. It, it, it's like a really cool kind of performance. Like he's, they're they're kind of relaxed. Like the special effects are kind of this like low key stuff that I think at the time was impressive. I don't think it looks terrible now, but it it's more that um, this movie keeps on loving to have special effects in bright daylight or on like a a, a snowy field where you can make out every mistake. I know, well, I, right? I think what what it is is that you know you you introduce all these characters last minute making you wonder why couldn't this have been seeded in in, a, in the previous films but yeah, yeah. none of these last minute actors are phoning it in and no. the special effects for all their flaws are really fun and the actors sort of like moving their bodies to represent charging up their powers are putting so much into it i don't mind the holes in the special effects i think they're i think they're really enjoyable Oh, and the actors that are reacting to to uh, the different magic powers have a nice sense of wonder, at least when it's being introduced at the beginning before they all start fighting each other. Like it's, it it, it feels a little bit more like the first film, where it, at times it's a bit more relaxed and people can catch their breath and they're just kind of hanging out. We well, you know, uh, the other thing is that I I was I, I when we started this, I kind of didn't like that vampires you just have whatever fucking power that there's no like there's no sort of <laughs> theming to it they kind of eschew right. the traditional vamp most of the traditional vampire powers for freaky x-men power but in this movie it works in this movie i love that the vampire 
vampire's powers don't make a goddamn bit of sense. Yeah, fire, that thing that kills us. I get to control that. And like, <laughs> Fucking why not, right? It's so gleeful. I get to yeah, make well an infinite in. garlic. Yeah. It's... Like, once, once again, this should have been the whole movie. This should have been the whole mm-hmm. series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, t- t- turn turns out it's it's this is also the one of those things is that every vampire seems to be so fed up with the Volturi and so politically tied to Carlisle Cullen. It's one of those things where it makes me wonder. Well, how are the Volturi even in charge? Weather Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Yeah. I guess it's only the threat of violence. What do they do again? Do they preside over nothing? They're they're quite old. But it, other than being in their, like, Dracula castle in Italy, they, they seem to make plans that don't seem to do anything. Maybe it's, like, a, a satire on politicians, or I, I don't really know. Like, it, I, I wouldn't mind, like, a movie just about the Volturi. I think there's some of the more interesting characters yeah. here. And as we mentioned several times over these past episodes, which you can all listen to at SequelCast2.com, you can... Uh, um, Michael Sheen as Aro as the leader is such a delightful performance with his <laughs> his laugh his oh god um, yeah his, his yeah, delivery a... he 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 like loves to pause between lines of dialogue and even words and sentences and like he seems to I, I want to be I want to watch the movie he thinks is in his head what he thinks Twilight is yeah because it's it's I, much well, different than what everyone else is, is doing yeah Michael Sheen and Billy Burke are like the MVPs of these movies like. Mm-hmm. They're kind of acting circles around everyone else and seem to be, like, having much more fun than everyone else. Um, but, yeah, like you said, I think you said it perfectly, is I want to see the movie that he's in. Like, I think he's in a separate movie, and it's much better than this well, one. I, ironically, we do get to see the movie that's in his head, because... So what what is the climax of this movie? So we get to Volturi and all of their, you know, goth vampires, and then we get the Collins and, and their International Justice League of Allies. Uh, and and the child is there, too. Which oh, yes. I would want to keep the child as far mm-hmm. away from an apocalyptic battle as possible. But anyway, yep. um, and like, you know, they 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 charge up and, you know, there's this thrilling battle. We get to see so many characters have these glorious deaths in battle to the point there's there's even there's even a bit which I which I loved, where like where one of the Volturi, like he gets decapitated, but right before he gets decapitated, he just gets this look on his face and says, "Oh, finally," because <laughs> I guess he knew how he was gonna die. <laughs> Something he's just bored with it. Oh, this is and another it's just an apps. It's a it's another case of like the 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 like converging powers. Like Annie's like kind of psychic and can kind of see the future, right? And oh, oh yeah. You know, because we get to see everyone slaughtered, and then suddenly it cuts, and she's holding the lead Volturi's hand, and we know he has the power to read minds. We know she has the power to read the future, although how her power works changes based on the needs of the plot. So, of course, by him touching her, he gets to see her vision of the future, and that's the future that happens if the conflict escalates. So we got to see this amazing climactic fight 
that didn't happen. And yeah, normally I, I would mm-hmm. absolutely despise this movie for it, but I liked it because, oh yeah, this is a creative use of two powers you established in the pre- previously in the film. So congratulations. So fucking Brasalia can see the future and read minds and shit. So what about her is special? She can do that. And she ages really quick. And she's a va- vampire baby daywalker. Um, and this is what everyone's really all pissed off about. And then she shows them the, I guess, like the fateful outcome of what would happen if they did, you know, throw down. And then they don't. When I say it out loud, it just sounds so stupid. Yeah, yeah, it like it, it works better on the screen because you had all that fun cathartic violence and and you know the giggle and uh, and that reveal. When you, when it's paired with the reveal, I am gonna call this a successful story beat. Although with with the with the child and her whole aging thing, that's this is the part that feels absolutely unearned and tagged on because there's one vampire who like for whatever reason isn't at the final conflict and after that moment he shows up with this like tribal vampire from like brazil and turns out he's also a human vampire hybrid uh and explain and just explains oh yeah yeah you age really fast but once you reach adulthood you stop aging and you have all the all the, all the advantages of being a vampire and a human, none of the downsides of being a vampire and a human. You don't have to drink blood. You'll live forever. It's great. And it's like, okay, hold, hold on. <laughs> for, this part, this is a character we've never seen before. So why should I care? Uh, two, okay, so this isn't an anomaly. This has happened before. And with all the sex the vampires get into, I refuse to believe this has only happened twice in all human history. I and real though. The, the Volturi made such a big deal of it happening now. How did this fly under their radar the previous time this happened? Yeah, they're all knowing and all seeing and they preside over again nothing. Um, and, and I don't, and I don't get a sense that that that, that, that this older human vampire hybrid was particularly well hidden. It's just like nobody noticed. Yeah, I mean, also it was like when you know, um, Doctor Cullen's like, you know, like I've never heard of this before. I've never seen this before. Again, like if you are a vampire and you have the gift of you know infinite life, if because in in these movies apparently nothing, the only thing that can kill you is like turning into a clay pot and getting your head ripped off. Um, so you, you have a nice long life. You wouldn't like research and find out the like there's got to be some written lo- like fucking lore record of this happening. And apparently it has happened. And like you said, Thrasher, we, we find out that it happened and it's just kind of like a nah, whatever. It's it's to- it's totally unearned. And and it also because because there is like there is tension. They allude to the fact that because the child is aging so quickly, I think there there is this like what what the hell's happening? Happening. Is the child just going to like age and die within the course of a year? We don't know. And this completely removes all that tension. And also, <laughs> given like the pacing it doesn't resolve of everything, it, it removes it. And like I, I'm really turning on the characters in this one because like I think like Jacob for a while was all right, but with like his weird fucking Grover Cleveland imprinting shit, um, it just kind of like he just kind of creeps me out whenever he's on screen, whenever he's around fucking Jezebel. Um, cause I'm just kind of like, what is, what is he doing there? Why is he holding her? It looks weird. And also like, so before, you know, vampires and werewolves are, don't get along. Arr, I can't even stand to be around you. And then this one, he's just kind of always just fucking lurking around. Like, 
it's like, don't you guys hate each other or something? But you don't because you're fucking bonded to the fucking Julia Child or her fucking name is. Um, I don't know. I and Rob, I fucking Robert or what, what's his name? Fucking Edward. And he's just so boring. And all the other columns are so boring. And their stupid vamp privilege and their wonderful home and the fuck pad that they make for them. It's like, oh, you have every bag and every shoe and every fucking thing. And we're basically James Bond fucking ugh. Oof, my goof. You know, and, and and that's like we've talked about all the like just just all the problems created by this whole like imprinting on an infant thing. And the film never resolves it. It just seems to be oh yeah well he'll just stay imprinted to her until the day she dies i guess the expectation is once she reads a physical form of adulthood they're going to date or something it never it never brings up the fact that when the child grows up she still may never be interested in him yeah but they're imprinted it's it seems very uh like it has this like approach these films have this like approach to like you know sex childbearing marriage and these like very dated Christian ways is that like all Bella needed was a baby all Edward and Bella needed was to be married um, a, a baby that she'll never have to raise and that will be capable of fending on itself within a year or two oh yeah exactly uh. like, <laughs> it's it's like so fucking just blah it's so vanilla and just dull right I mean so why don't we sort of Ready to give the overall ratings for uh, Breaking Down Part 2? I believe so. Okay. I uh, I give a sequel yes to Breaking Down Part 2. I think you have uh, more interesting characters, more conflict. Uh, notable stuff actually happens in this. I You know, do I wish it was sort of a bit more uh, savage in the violence like Eclipse and maybe has some more camp in it? Sure. But, I, I, you know, overall, I think... Um, the, the twist ending that Thrasher enjoys so much was not my favorite, but yet there's enough here. I think that's that's interesting that you could even get away with watching this film and not watching the others and still have a pleasant enough time and not feel terribly lost. And that sort of speaks to how this, uh, as um, old old Scrooge put it in a Christmas Carol, this movie is like butter over too much bread. Right? It's just, <laughs> it's, it, you're just stretching something. So it's like he's stretching Play-Doh super thin where you can see holes in it. And no one wants to use it. Like, I don't know why this last book needed to be two movies. I don't know why this needed to be. You could have done this in two movies. You know, just as, as Thrasher said, and as we've beaten that that dead vampiric course over and over and over again. Alex, I'm gonna give this a sequel. No, um, and I'm gonna um, I'm going to think of a very lame metaphor. And the lamest metaphor I can think of is that this is like spreading jam on the thinnest piece of toast and trying not to break it but like mm -hmm. the knife is like a fucking scimitar and you're just like and it just cracks like you you don't even spread the jam you just kind of like just crack right out the gate and that's how i feel about this movie and that's, it's just I, the perverse irony is that yeah i chose this i i brought this on us and i'm sorry um it's just so <laughs> boring and these characters are so dull i'm watching it like i just have it on mute in the background now and like it's actually like making me kind of want to renege on the other movies that i said were good because i just don't think these <laughs> films are any good you can say you've seen them at least it's yes the pull quote that we, they've got to put that pull quote on the dvd it doesn't spread the jam <laughs> <laughs> they don't uh, know if it's good or not negative they just put it there 
Yeah. Oh, and I guess they like these was they then they have the odd I mean, I guess it's expected, but the audacity to show all those clips during the credits and give every performer mm. this big moment. It, ironically, just like the Avengers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yes. And 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 I just found I found it unintentionally comical, but I am going to give this a, a very enthusiastic sequel. Yes, this is a deeply flawed film in a deeply flawed franchise, but it is front to back the most entertaining film in this franchise. It is never boring, uh, and if you're if you're not enjoying the film on its own merits, for every time a scene, you'll enjoy a scene on its own merits, and then you'll enjoy a scene for its absurdity and everything it gets wrong. It is such an amazing combination of good and bad filmmaking that it must be seen to be believed. Uh, un so I guess that counts as a qualified sequel, yes, but I'm going to say an unqualified sequel, yes. <laughs> it barely spreads the jam. That, that should be maybe a new, that would be a good uh, t-shirt maybe. Barely spreads the jam. <laughs> Our new aggregator. We need to do that. We'll we'll design it. We'll throw it up on Redbubble or wherever. The sure, hell. sure. Yeah, that's not a bad idea because we used to have uh, sequel cast T-shirts that did sell back in the day. But I think if you just have a weird catchphrase that people can't place with no branding, <laughs> I think that might be more successful because people we'll might just buy it and think it's a thing, you know. Or like people start like uh, like fucking up the origin story. Like, oh yeah, it was like this film critic talking about like putting like butter on like a fucking toast with like a fucking Excalibur or some shit. Right, right. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm going to bring back an old segment we haven't done in a while just because a lot has been going on lately and I just want to keep it to one uh, one thing but you guys can bring up others if you want. This is sequel news. Ooh. Did you see that uh, you saying critic reminded me of it. Quentin Tarantino has announced what allegedly will be his final tenth film, and it's going to have the title "The Film Critic," and uh, it allegedly will be based on uh, Pauline Kael in Los Angeles in the seventies. Oh shit! I I have heard of that. I I am intrigued, and yet reading like reading about it, all I can think is Jay Sherman. Like at last, now's my time to shine. <laughs> it's yeah, so a lot of. Though, right. because like when I remember, so like think about this. Like I remember when it was like I think 2015 or something. He announced that his next movie was going to be like not that his next movie was going to be um about the Manson family. And what we got was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I right. think like this is going to like loosely about Pauline Kael. I'm using air quotes, Pauline Kael. And I think we're going to get this whole fucking other thing. And I hope it's yeah. like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I love that. It's going to be uh, L.A. in the 70s, certainly. That's going to be oh, a yeah. fetish, period. I, you know, I really, I, I, it's apparently not going to happen now. I was really curious and looking forward to what his Star Trek movie might be. I, I'm kind of shocked that he doesn't just, like, turn to Robert Rodriguez and Guillermo del Toro and just say, well, hey, let's strip all the Star Trek stuff out of this script and make our own Star Trek movie. How is, how is that not his next film? Yeah, you know, he came up with the idea. Someone else scripted it because he was too busy, um, and they decided not to go that way. You know, but the the Star Trek stuff, they were going to do another one with with Chris Pine and all the you know the young Kirk and all those guys. Yeah, I guess now middle aged Kirk. Uh, and and then what happened? And then all the actors became too famous, and the movies were very expensive anyway. So they decided to just do more TV stuff instead. 
And I think in a way that's good. It's kind of like what Disney's doing with the Star Wars stuff. Um, although in Disney, I think it's just they can't get their shit together sometimes. But like to have like a five-year break between another new movie or a 10-year break or whatever, I think might make a theatrical event something special again for that series. As opposed I, to Marvel doing 30 films per year. I thought it would have been so cool if like Tarantino and like Robert Rodriguez and Roger Avery got together and did like an American Zoetrope thing. Like what uh, Coppola did. Yeah, back yeah. Then, you know, awesome. Yeah, and like cool. not just for their own shit, but like bankroll fucking like independence coming up. I mean, I guess he kind of did that with um, <clears throat> with uh, the, you know, studio we probably shouldn't mention because that horrible person that was affiliated with. But yeah. um, I mean, that well, I think would have been really. Yeah, right. <clears throat> I think that would have been really, a really cool way to go. And also, I think, like kind of democratize filmmaking a little bit, because, I mean, Tarantino's a lot of things. And I, I think one of those things is he's someone that wants to see new creative original shit happen. And I think that would be a really cool, you know, direction. Yeah, it, was, to take the... it was funny with Tarantino. I was talking to my sister about it. She's like, what do you think about the 10 film stuff? And I said, I think this kind of, I mean, it's a marketing thing. I remember back on the, it might've been Kill Bill was the first time on a trailer. It's like the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino. And um, I think it's like really kind of goofy and, and foolish, but as a marketing thing, it's always a talking point he brings up on talk shows. So it always keeps him in the, and people write a gazillion articles about it. So I think from a marketing aspect, it's pretty smart, but I, I do think he'll do, he's talked about doing a, a whole Netflix series or something just based on the fake TV show. Leonardo's DiCaprio's character was in, in once upon a time in Hollywood. Oh, uh, uh, border law or bounty law or something. Yeah, yeah, bounty law, something like that. And then also, you know, he he's come out with two books recently. I can certainly see him doing more books, whether they're a novelization of his own movies or stuff set in that universe or just even more film criticism, I think, is extremely likely. Because if you've ever heard his podcast with Roger Avery, those fuckers can't shut up. Yeah, I do kind of love that show. It's actually the Video Archive podcast is kind of like I've definitely reevaluated um his career and persona in a way like i was i was i won't won't say i was down on tarantino but i wasn't as stoked as i once was like i felt like i had outgrown him a little bit and then i think after one small time in hollywood and kind of getting to know him through the one-way conduit that is podcasting i think i have a much more uh, enthusiastic reappraisal of his work he knows his stuff he likes really obscure stuff and he really seems to be into 1970s made for tv movies and also, I like that he wears his weird shit on his sleeve. Like, he doesn't try to intellectualize, like, his, like, interest in violence and sex and shit like that. He just, this is me, this is what I like, and I don't really give a shit if you approve or disapprove, you know? Yeah, he, he's not one to use the term guilty pleasure, in other words. Exactly, yeah. And I, uh, I the artist uh, is at their best when they are sincere with themselves and their audiences, you know? Yeah, so I think you know his his upcoming film, the film critic, has potential. Does um, ever uh, Thresher? Do you know kind of the highlights of the um, Pauline Kale story? Regrettably, no. It, it's it. I do not. So, uh, do you mind if I go into it for a minute, and then we can? Oh no, go right ahead. If I, if I can yeah, just yeah. get one, my one uh, yeah, ball ball off. That whole like you know the the that whole like the seventh film and Quentin Tarantino. I've always had this fantasy in my head that like the trailer would come up, the seventh film by Quentin Tarantino. I know you think it's the eighth, but he only wrote the script for Natural Born Killers. He did not direct it. <laughs> right? Yeah, there is always people going. Technically, it's this because right, like what? Yeah, because four rooms actually counts as a directing credit. Uh. 
but that according was an to, apology according, bill. According to DGA rules, because it's 30% of what's shot, it's, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, briefly, and there's different, a lot of books on, in this story and what happened, but my interpretation of the thing with Pauline Kael, she was an infamous uh, uh, film critic at The New Yorker uh, and other places, and um, she kind of grew up. It took her, I think, might have even been in her late 30s, early 40s before she really found a career that clicked for her, which was a film criticism. And her uh, Warren Beatty was, was in a few movies, but uh, her Rapture's review of uh, Bonnie and Clyde basically made that film a hit and made Warren Beatty's career. And so um, he was, uh, I think they even became friends a bit like you do. And uh, as uh, Warren Beatty's career was, was going up and about, he it was getting some, maybe some good reviews from her, maybe some bad reviews. And he said, Hey, you know, it, she seems like a smart cookie from her reviews. Cause I say, if, if you've never read a Pauline Kale review, do yourself a favor and get a book from a library, or I think you might be able to buy some of them on Kindle. I don't know. They've been out of print for a while, but her reviews definitely show her personality more than a lot of other reviews did at the time. And she's, she's, you know, quite blunt in her thoughts and, and so forth. And so he has her come to Los Angeles uh, quit her job at the New Yorker as a critic and puts her as an executive to produce this movie that he's um, developing with a friend of his. And then uh, some people think it's a Machiavellian plan because uh, in short order, she's fired from the movie and has to crawl back tail between her legs to the New Yorker as a failed executive now. Huh. And her career was never quite the same. After and this that, is she's the outline. Back in the this is the outline for the film. Um, potentially. I mean, since it's said in Los Angeles, if it's a Pauline Kale inspired critic, I don't think they'll, I don't know. He does use people's names and in, in these things, but yeah, I mean, there's it, tons of, I mean, everyone once upon a time in Hollywood is the people they are. It's not like they call them like, you know, Loman Polanski or anything mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty interesting. I think like, I, I am a big, I am a kale maniac. I've gone out of my way to try and read as much as I possibly could. And Pauline Kael is fascinating because she was, I think, probably the most she's like the incarnate of like the the feared critic, like the poison pen critic. But she was yes. so widely admired, rightfully so, because she was so fucking a very brilliant, talented, incredible writer. Um, and she also did, like you said, with Warren Beatty, like cultivate these kind of uneasy friendships with a lot of people in Hollywood. And there's all these great Pauline Kale stories that like, uh, you know, she and Sam Peckinpah would drink together a lot that she could hold her liquor like a fucking Kennedy. Yep, um, yep. Uh, I think got John Cassavetes like threw shoes at a taxi cab window. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, something about, uh, another one, I think like Peter Fox stole like her fucking jacket or something weird like that. So, yeah, I mean, she's a real tough cookie and people are, are thinking, you know, the, the casting for that, should be good, but people are really hoping for some old actors we haven't seen on screen in a while making appearances in that thing, I think is what a lot of people were excited about. I mean, even in like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, one of the, the small actors with a few lines was the guy who played Spider-Man on the Spider-Man TV show in the 70s. Oh, shit. Or 60s, right? I mean, he picks some, he makes some really obscure casting decisions. So we'll, um, I'll be excited to see more and whether the film critic is actually what the title is. I don't know, but that the stuff is hitting Hollywood reporter. I imagine we'll see an official announcement and some casting before too long because uh, Tarantino, not only is he doing podcasting, writing books nowadays, he also has a child named Leo and he spends half his time living in Israel um, with his no wife shit. who is Jewish. So uh, it, you know, he has just a much different life than he does before. So, um, 
that he wants to spend time raising his kids as well, I think is probably a, a part of it. Um, of you know, feeds into the Ted film uh, narrative. Uh, any other stuff in the news that seems interesting? Huh. I I'm still kind of knocked out by this um, by this Tarantino thing, and I I one thought on the ten film thing is that I'm like maybe it's bullshit, but I don't know. He's pretty disciplined, especially I think from Django on. I think like his films have become more and more uh, disciplined and refined and deliberate and lengthy, which I don't mind. Um, maybe it is his last film. I mean, it's not like Soderbergh. Soderbergh's like, I'm going to retire. Then I made three movies next year. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tarantino, like, uh, I think, I, what is it? Has It's been almost 10 films over 30 years. You know, I could, I could totally see, you know, he, he stops writing and directing films for a while. I can't imagine it will be the end of the end, but maybe. Maybe it'll be a long time before he gets behind the camera again. But he, he's so much a part of filmmaking that I, I can only assume to keep himself occupied, he's just going to start a production company. He's just going to start producing weird films for interesting people. Let's hope. Sure, yeah, maybe stuff for Fangoria films or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I can see him doing stuff like that, sure. Uh, all right, so we can go on to um, what you're watching. Uh, I went to the theater for the first time in a while because um, I just wanted to get out of the house. And I saw a movie we'll probably talk in the show at some point, uh, Creed 3. Ah. Oh, nice. So directed by Michael B. Jordan, the star, and it also stars... Um, God, I just had his name in my head. Really good actor. He was on uh, uh, Lovecraft Country, which is a show unfortunately canceled on HBO. It is Jonathan Majors, of course, mm. um, as the guy he boxes against. I, I would say, you know, unlike the other Creed movies, it probably has the best kind of the bad guy isn't the right word here exactly, but the 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 person he goes up against at the at the end. Um, and it, you know, it's a little bit cheesy. It's it's I would say it's not as good as the first film. It's better than the second film. Uh, notably, there's no Sylvester Stallone in it. Because uh, Stallone felt his character had nothing to do when they talked to him about what his character would be doing. Um, Stallone thought the story was too dark, which I think is kind of strange because it it, it seems like the story, uh, too many things happen without any conflict. Like the story is a bit predictable, but I think the acting is good. Is it worth seeing in the theater? Yeah. Yeah. But hey, it, it's better than, than Creed 2. You know, I think one of the original ideas for Creed 3 that Stallone was trying to push was oh the son of Mr. T's character from Rocky Three, which I think I was is about to crack that awful. Joke. You can't keep having the children of previous exactly. characters. <laughs> yes, right. So, the right. second one, who's the challenger? I, I didn't see it. It's uh, even Drago's son. Okay, yeah, so it's even Drago's kid. So yeah, that would make sense. It would be fucking. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, Creed, Creed himself, right? Uh, uh, Adonis is the son of Apollo, right? Right. So it's like. Oh, and now it's going to be the son of Tommy the Machine Gun going up against Pistol. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's, the, that's the only way you do it, is that you just get the sons of all of the previous Rocky villains that haven't already shown up. So, yeah, yeah, the Mr. T's. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, so you get the Clubber Lang's son, you get Machine Gun's son, you get Thunderlip's son, and they're all brought <laughs> together by Paulie's son. 
who uh, they're going to make okay. an evil team that's yeah. <laughs> going to try to murder Creed to steal the Rocky fortune because they all feel like they deserve it. Uh, and so and so they'll come after Creed like the wet bandits because he's home alone <laughs> in his mansion. And then Creed, it's like, but from Creed's perspective, it's die hard. He has to fight off these assassins that seem to keep breaking into his house on the same night to kill him. <laughs> right. I watched that. I, yeah, I mean, or I'm available, could, Hollywood. Yeah, you know, or you could do um, why not have Creed fight Rocky's son? I think if you're going to to, to do that, that might actually be interesting. The one who's not a boxer. That's yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Toughen that kid up, little shit. Yeah, and then you'd have uh, Stallone as, as Rocky being very conflicted. Who's he going to back up? Um, yeah, so but this movie already off a budget of $75 million, has made over $200 million at the box office. It's doing very, very well. Uh, partially, I think uh, Michael B. Jordan is really good at promotion. He he's This is his directorial debut. He stressed how much anime is an influence. And there's several shots that are right from famous anime shots that he lifted. Um, Interesting. In the fights, it does some cool shots where it's kind of like under the armpit looking at the guy's stomach as they're boxing. There's some like video gamey shots that are sort of interesting. Huh. Uh, so, and um, Jonathan Majors is, 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 is quite good. Some reviews compared his performance to a Brando thing. And I think I can kind of get what they're talking about. He's a bit twitchy and mumbly and it's not what you would really expect in, in something like this. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's going to get Amazon prime before too long. I think when that happens, we'll cover it on the show because we covered Creed one and two a long time ago, right? Oh, Thrasher? Nice. Yes. Yes, we did. Yeah, back in, because, uh, I mean, this Creed 3 was announced in 2019, so, I mean, they had to delay this a bit for the um, Oscars and, and everything. Um, all right. Cool. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So I revisited uh, I revisited uh, a, a film from my own past and from a series, which if we ever want to do another long form, uh, another, like, extended series, I, I would love to do this one. Uh I watched uh, David uh, David Sedaris's Day, or sorry, Andy Sedaris's Day of the Warrior from 1996, starring Julie Strain. It is the second to last film uh, Andy Sedaris uh, ever did. Uh, uh, Return to Savage Beach is the last film he ever did, and that's the one that retroactively puts all of his previous produced produced and directed films into one continuity uh but day day of the warrior it's just this it's this very campy movie about sexy lady spies and their database of classified information gets uh compromised by this assassin called the warrior and so they all have to get together to track him down and eliminate him uh before he can like use before he can use all their classified data to kill all their other agents and there's like spy stuff and James Bond stuff. There's comedy, there's broad comedy, there's slapstick comedy. Uh, there's a line which I I used to quote all the time. I think when I have to start quoting it again, there's a line where like Julie Strain is waiting for her contact and she's just like standing out there like smoking a cigarette and this uh and and they're talking uh and and she's talking to her contact, the contest like looks her over Cause she, clearly she's like, looks, she's supposed to look like a prostitute and, and the, the contact is like, so what did you use to do before you were a spy? And she just kind of sneers and says, I used to work at Disney world. I was like, what did you do? I was one of the rides. 
<laughs> so that's kind of the level of wit that's on display. There's an Elvis impersonator spy, uh, and and it ends basically with a professional wrestling match. It is um, honestly, it is everything you want in an Andy Sidaris film. Plus a plus a lot of nudity. Uh, and the thing the thing that's and and this is one of the reasons. I find these movies fascinating, aside from the fact that I used to watch them all the time in the 90s. Um, there it is, it's no longer producing episodes, but there was a feminist film podcast called Bonnie and Maud, and they reviewed, uh, I believe it was Savage Beach, uh, but they did an episode about one of uh, Andy Sidaris's films, and what shocked them was, and really led to some great conversation, is that these movies really only exist to show women in bikinis firing machine guns, which is something that Andy Sidaris is really into, and it seems to be the only reason he makes movies. Um, and despite that, by every metric they had, it is the most feminist film they ever reviewed for their podcast. Interesting. Kind of like a Russ Meyer? Be beating out movies written, directed, and produced by women. Yeah, uh, and it really okay. led to them to consider consider like their metrics. And honestly, I don't think metrics are an effective or or even decent way to review films. It's just like you can't tick boxes and say you've reviewed a film. But like these are great. These movies are absolutely great. They don't try to be more than what they are, and they're not too long either. If it turns out you don't like it, you're in and out pretty quick. It's like an hour and twenty minutes, hour and a half, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, like, the only true, like, instance of, like, a male feminist is an accidental male feminist, like, something like, like you said, like an Andy Sedaris, or, like, when Abel Ferreira made Ms. 45, or something like that, um, <laughs> or, like, you know, fucking Russ Meyer, or, or uh, you know, like, Valley of the Dolls, shit like that, is, like, when it's almost accidental, I guess you'd say, I don't, I don't know, I haven't seen any of Andy Sedaris's movies, but, but you've officially piqued my interest. Yeah, no, you—they you, are definitely worth seeing. I would, I would say, st don't start at the beginning because, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, because he did do, he did co-produce like three movies with like Roger Corman, and they're 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 good, but you can see like like they're not unfiltered. Andy Sidaris, you can feel the Corman pressure on those movies, right? So I would say start with like Malibu Express or Hard, better yet, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Okay. Um, that's probably where you, where you want to start, but yeah, and it's just like, and they are just continue to be fun, and it's also you know Julie Strain, the star of this movie, uh, six, uh, was it six foot one and worth the climb? I think or seven <laughs> foot one and worth the climb? I think was her 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 tagline for a while and the name of her biography. Um, she she. You know, she has limited range, but she's a really fun actress. We talked about her when we did the Heavy Metal series because she's the voice of the character Julie in Heavy Metal 2000. She really deserved to be a bigger action star than she was. Than, yeah, I or, or, or that she was at the time she passed away, unfortunately. Like, she, she knows exactly what she's doing in these films, and she hits that tone perfectly. Nice. I had no idea she passed. Um, it's too bad. Well, it's it was confusing because her death was announced, and then it turns out that that was just a a rumor that got picked up. And she's, oh no no, I'm still alive. But then, like four months later, she actually did pass away. She was having some health uh, problems towards the end of her life, unfortunately. 
Yeah, that happens. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that's uh, really quite something. So we are, um, uh, Alex, what's something you've been watching? So uh, we also went to the theater and uh, saw the new Scream movie. We might be talking about this at some point. Have we covered the Scream films? No, this is Scream 6, right? Yeah, the sixth one. I was like, I kind of was like dragged, not dragged to the theater, but I was very lukewarm on the last one. Um, Four, I thought was all right. Five, I was just kind of like done with it. So I was kind of dragging my feet to this one. And I got to say, I really dug it. Um, I mean, like this series, I think, was really close to running out of steam. Um, But I think they they moved the action to New York. Um, so, you know, fuck Jason takes Manhattan. This is this is the blood and guts slasher film that you want in the Big Apple. When they, they do a lot shot of, in New York, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. They do a lot of interesting things with the uh, character and stuff. I mean, like the meta jokes and references like are just a little tired at this point. Like and they even address that in the film, which almost wears it out even more because you've gotten so much of it, especially when you do them so close together, like they've been doing them since the fourth one. Um it can be a little tiring, but on the whole, it pretty—I think it really works. They definitely ramp up the kills and the violence and the, the whole like uh, you know fucking the gore factor and everything to a point where I was honestly shocked at certain moments because I was like thinking like, all right, there's no way this could happen, right? It's like a crowded area, broad daylight. It's the city, and then boom, it happens. You know what I mean? Like whenever you think something is gonna. Like, this will be too far if they take it there. And then they take it there, and they actually do it quite well. Um, I'm not going to give anything away. I think, like, you're going to... This is the sixth film in a, in a slasher series that's been pretty decent so far, so the resolution's going to be pretty fucking ridiculous. Um, I think if you can get over that, it's a pretty satisfying movie. And would you say it? Uh, you should watch Scream Five before watching Scream Six? Do they tie in that close or not really? Yeah, the char- the main characters do so. Yeah. Even if it's kind of a slog, it'll as a as an adjunct to Scream uh, Six, I would say it's worth it. So Nev Campbell didn't take uh, a part in this movie because they lowballed her. Um, did you oh, miss wow, her? Okay. Did you miss her in the film or a little bit? Um, a little bit, yeah. And it was funny because that makes this line of dialogue work much more because at one point they're like, oh, is Sydney like going to be here basically? And they're like, no, like I think she's like, they basically say like she's let's give her a break or like she's too good for these movies now. (laughs) (laughs) So I think they kind of paid homage to her by letting her off the hook, I guess. I don't know. I mean, maybe she'll be in seven. I don't know. But I think they um, it's been a long time. You know, Scream 4 was, I believe, Wes Craven's last film. Yeah, so, I think so. There, there's been a bit of a, um, a a gap, which made people hungry for that series again. There was a, a TV show I never saw that was an MTV. Um, I think it was two seasons, three seasons, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I heard about that. I never got into it. But um, did, yeah, the 2020... Sorry. The new movies, did, did like, are they beholden to anything that happened in the TV series? Or is the TV series kept as its own thing i don't know actually i don't know the series that well um but the these two that have happened post the post craven screams are both uh, beholden to the original trilogy i guess i'd say um while you know building their own thing uh the fifth one i like i said i wasn't crazy about it um but i think it's worth it to 
Um, the fifth one's a bit of a slog, but the sixth one, I think, is really kind of picking up steam. Nice. Yeah, I, I only saw the beginning of Scream 5, and it was so intense I had to stop it and watch something else. Because I just wasn't in the mood for it, and the, the, the level of uh, uh, gore and kind of the intense camera work, it, you know, really kind of shook me a bit. So that's Yeah, that's this one ramps it up from that one, so wow, wow, okay. heads up. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I appreciate it. Um, cool. Okay, so we're going to go into sequel scene. Thrasher, you prepared something. Can you sort of set the stage here? What's going on? Because there's so many characters in these films, it's uh, easy to look at. <sighs> oh, yeah. So there's a scene where since every vampire apparently gets a unique power, and even though Bella is already resistant to other vampire powers, um, which I guess being a vampire enhances that power, so they're trying to, like test to see what what her gift is and so the one vampire that can generate electricity starts zapping them so it's basically it's the it's the collins hanging out doing expository power usage uh, pre-battle <laughs> to help train bella up for the fight okay um, it's kate garrett and dr carlisle cullen i think i'll be garrett um what do you want thrasher kate okay i shall be okay. dr carlisle very good. The Carl L. who looks younger than everyone else in his family. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. So Kate taking Bella's hand and zinging her with an electric charge. And yeah, she's a shield. All right. Could never put her on her ass. Or your voltage has been exaggerated. Kate holds out her hand to Garrett. Maybe it only works on the weak. Garrett, I wouldn't. Garrett touches Kate's palm and falls to his knees from the electric shock. Garrett looks at Kate, promptly smitten with her. You are an amazing woman. <laughs> <laughs> Which also, character development, uh, setting up another romantic relationship, but also yes. one with a decidedly sadomasochistic <laughs> edge. Which is not what you would expect in a movie that is so sort of chaste and puritanical with its sexual politics. Um, They're both chased and not at the same time I, I'm, I'm still a bit surprised i think in the first twilight film how uh aggressive um bella is where she's like no i want this i want to get married i want to have sex with you you 100 year old vampire man like fucking <laughs> yeah boring old fucking dork pile of twigs yeah you it's fucking goofus <laughs> you wimp bang my coffin lid baby you yeah. sack of coffee beans before we tease what we do, <laughs> sack of coffee beans, that's pretty good. Um, before I wrap it up, I do, cubes. I do want to talk about something I didn't mention before, which was uh, I was on the uh, Star Trek The Cruise 6 uh, a few weeks the ago. The Undiscovered Country. That's, that's right. That's where you were going. Right? And, and Shatner was a last-minute replacement uh, for Kate Mulgrew was supposed to be on there, Captain Janeway, but she couldn't do it. But yeah, I mean, it was like a convention on a boat, and then plus you get to go to Mexico, and I've never been to Mexico before. And um, I guess if you have any questions for me, I'd be happy to answer them. But I, I will say in Mexico, they are not, I did not expect that many pharmacies. My God. <laughs> it, it, part of it because it's, you know, it's where the cruise ships leave off. But there is like dozens in a one mile radius, all with cartoon characters with big erections trying to sell. <laughs> uh, uh, not not just, um, you know, knockoff medications for uh for that that problem but also uh just 
flat out selling what they claim to be steroids and human growth hormone in these unmarked bottles that are are fairly (laughs) sketchy. Weird. The Tylenol we bought because it was in a Tylenol packaging. And like that one's less likely to be illegitimate, but those were in like doses of like 500 milligrams. Like it's it's really something else. Uh, But my wife was not doing well at the, um, on the ship for part of it. Uh, so the, the Tylenol really helped her out. But, but yeah, it's, once you get past there, you can find some pretty like cheap places to get tacos and stuff, but you gotta, it's a lot of people more, more in your face. I found than like Dominican Republic where people just trying to sell you shit and go to their jewelry store. And one guy, I just, you know, had on my sunglasses. I kept walking. You can't apologize. Like they want your, uh, eye contact, right? Oh yeah. So if you just keep walking and ignoring them, that's the best way I found to, to deal with them. And one guy just this like 200 pound, 200 something pound guy just stood in front of me, looks at me directly and says, Aloha. <laughs> he was <laughs> really mad. I wasn't wanting to get his little trinkets or whatever, but, but yeah, no overall cool trip. Nice. I want to, I want to see these hilarious pharmacies. Uh, yeah, I took photos off to put nice. in the chat. So Thrasher, do you have any questions or? No, I just think that's really cool. I've already told my story about almost being run over by William Shatner. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's... I guess I can I can cap that with yeah our Shatner story. So you can pay money for photos with people and Shatner, with with his age, with him being the the first captain. If you don't count the original Captain Pike and then the, the Star Trek pilot, I'm like you know this is really an opportunity. I'll I'll you know whatever it is I'll pay it and uh, and we did and we they had him do it late at night on the first. Um, night of the cruise which perhaps wasn't the best idea and and so he's just like hi there and he's sitting on a stool just like still his security is in front of him saying like no high fives no hugging no because he's in his he's what 90 91 something like that he's he's old and, and that he can even he wasn't there for the whole cruise but that's not terribly uncommon with the celebrities on these things they might get off on the second city or whatever and and fly back to their mansion or, or whatever, or whatever he's doing, um, and you know, it was sort of like distant, not terribly polite, but it was what it was. But for me, that the funniest thing was was two things. One, the guy behind us was was a man, probably in his sixties, got on his knees and bowed to Shatner. And I, wow! I, I had to. I don't think I was able to resist rolling my eyes. Like I didn't look in their direction, but. Cause they, that feels like something dangerous to do in front of Shatner and people who have done that in front uh, of Shatner, that, that has caused problems. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably so. And I think, but, um, but you, I think you've, you've been to conventions where you've gotten pictures with people thrasher, but like, it's a very professional oh, yeah. operation. They like feed you through like 10 seconds a piece. Boom, boom, boom. It's not to, if the person wants to talk to you, if they initiate it, you, you can say like a, a brief hello or something, but typically like the unspoken rule is you just do, do your photo, boom, move on. Like it's a very uh, transactional sort of thing to to get as many people through, which I get. But um, and and after we're in line to to wait for the photo to print out in these nice color printers they have, laser printers. Uh, Shatner uh, was on his little scooter, like like what you saw, Thrasher, and um, the security is like, get out of the way, get out of the way, and, and I assume Shatner had to go to the bathroom or something. And Shatner uh, does does something which I think is just the perfect comic timing. He sighs. He's like. Ah. It's okay, everybody. Calm down. Mm-hmm. And then he zips her off at a scooter at what seems like 30 miles an hour. That's <laughs> leadership right there. There you That's go. Leadership. That's one leadership. Shat- one last Shatner story, then I'll stop. I heard this from someone else. I, I hope this really happened. But 
the elevators in a cruise ship quite small, quite close quarters. So there's an elevator full of people, and it opens up at floor ten. Floor ten is where all the celebrities were staying, pretty much, or they're, they're, or maybe the really wealthy people were there as well. And um, Shatner is on the other end, on this tenth floor, with his entourage, with his security, with his scooter thing, and nobody would. I guess he was expecting them to clear out the elevator, see who would get on, but nobody would because it was, you know, filled to capacity. And, and what are you going to do? So there was awkward silence, and uh, and then the door shuts. It continues to the next floor, and someone on the elevator whispers, "The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few," <laughs> and the whole elevator cracks up. But uh, I can see that being an awkward situation. I'm not quite sure what I do in that situation. Yeah, um, I don't know. Like if it was just myself, I would probably get out and 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 let them on but if you're in there with a you know a dozen people or whatever it is uh-huh. you're kind of asked to ask like you can't really do anything right <laughs> so but yeah i'd recommend it it's more than a usual cruise but um sometimes you can find deals we're, we're, we did book for next year so we'll be leaving instead of leaving from lax we'll be leaving out of uh, uh cape canaveral in florida oh. going to formerly cape uh, arbuckle really yeah, it was Cape. It was it was Cape Canaveral. Then it was Cape Kennedy. Then it was then before that it was Cape Arbuckle. I think I prefer Cape Kennedy. Cape Arbuckle makes me think of John Arbuckle from Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> now Garfield, are you going to fund this lunar mission or not? Fuck you, John. I'll fucking throw poop at you, John. <laughs> Man, there should be yeah Tarantino Garfield. I want to see that one. That'd yeah, yeah. Right. Still starring Sorry. Bill Murray. Right. So, I mean, we, so as uh, we mentioned, we wrapped up the Twilight series this episode. It's well, my I turn to pick. We're going to pick a, a series of four theatrical films that's really something quite uh, special, I think, this this day and age. And it, it's kind of wrapping up our pervert sex comedy uh, trilogy of series. Oh, no. You might recall a while oh. back, we discussed Revenge, not that long ago, I guess, we did Revenge of the Nerds, but way before that, we did Porky's. We're going to wrap it up with what else but a heaping slice of American pie. Oh, shit. Oh. Looking looking at American pie, American pie 2, American wedding, and American reunion. Wow. Uh, to quote one of the stars of that series, you're straight tripping, boo. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good, Eugene Levy, yeah. So, I mean, these movies, uh, I... I guess I grew up with these, you know, and I was in high school and the first few came out and um, uh, a friend of mine, his older brother was uh, in accounting at a universal Studios, So we actually had an early copy of the screenplay of the oh, first shit. film. And it was titled the film that studio is X will love, but script readers will hate. <laughs> oh but, God. But, but it was pretty much the same thing except for the ending, which was sort of cross cutting between a gazillion characters having orgasms, which um, I don't know if they filmed, but it's certainly not in the final movie exactly. Or not, not quite in that way. Uh, yeah, don't but, you remember yeah. that part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Stifler and all that, you know, I, they say you can't make a movie like this, but I really hate it when people use the word can't. I think yeah. you'd have to do it differently. Certainly recently it, it kind of came and went without much, uh, of a thing, but they did an American Pie, except all the main characters are girls. One of which is a cousin of Stifler. That's Interesting. Um, that's on Netflix. That's uh, a he, different he's way to the go connective about it. tissue throughout those films for some reason. Yes. Well, there's also the four direct-to-video things, which we won't cover at this time. But okay. yeah, that, all, that are all about Stifler's uh, uh, cousins and so forth. So, um, 
but Eugene Levy cameos in every one of those. So um, I don't know if he does in the new Netflix one. I couldn't get all the way through it, but yeah, we'll see. But I think there's a lot of food for thought in it. And um, in a lot of ways, I miss uh, uh, sex in the movies and talk about sex in the movies. I think they've been, uh, a lot of mainstream movies have been quite chaste about those topics. Twilight's, uh, I think, a good example. <laughs> That's that. How about that? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to make that connection, but you're absolutely right. Where it's, uh, ooh, they're holding hands. That's a spicy scene. I mean, yeah, I know. Ooh. It's like, a, but it's like the joke. from the neck up. <laughs> right. It's the joke in uh, Amish Paradise, the um, Weird Al Yankovic parody of Gangsta's Paradise. In oh, the yeah. music video, there's a scene. They're looking at a Playboy and they unfold it, and you can see uh, an Amish woman exposing an ankle. Like, I can't wear buttons, but I got a cool hat, and my homies agree I really look good in black, fool. Right. Uh, so at one point, when steampunk was getting particularly insufferable, I started working on a satirical steampunk persona to take the piss called Master of Ceremonies Roustabout, and I was trying to find a way to like to do steampunk raps, but I was specifically trying to find a way to rewrite a steampunk version of baby got back all about ankles <laughs> that yeah that would you'd have to break out your medical dictionary for that one i think uh but no that, that's inspired um what there, there's a very good uh web comic um that that had a i don't remember the name of it but it had a joke where it just it, the caption is just steampunks and they're just clouds of steam with like hoop earrings and studs mohawks and shit mohawks yeah it's <laughs> just such a my anaconda silly. don't want none if you got fibromyalgia hun oh clever okay so yeah next time we'll be talking about american pie uh, you can follow me on twitter at m-a-t-w-b-t um i have been what kind of writing i've been doing i mean for for my day job i've been doing some ghost writing on forbes technology council on AI stuff, so that's sort of different, but it's not under my name, so you can't find it. But um, I will say I'm I'm trying to I, I'm I'm working on a Star Trek video games book that uh, should be coming out sometime next year. That's been a lot more difficult than I expected it would. Um, one is to get interview subjects, although it's not entirely a making of book. But secondly, just getting the old games to run on computers is really really difficult. Oh. So yeah, but you feel it, like emulators and shit. Maybe I don't know. Old, yeah, yeah, not just emulators, but then it's sometimes it still doesn't quite run, and so you have to, <laughs> you know, virus scan these somewhat dodgy patches to, to try and get oh, things yeah. to work. And and computers, I mean, it's part of the reason why uh, you know having like a home console is is almost better for gaming in a lot of ways is that you just don't have to spend all this shit configuring stuff. Like it didn't feel like when I first got into gaming in the '80s on a computer, where it was almost like a computer game to get a game to run. Yeah, the, you know, through actually like the memory managers and the freeing oh, up yeah. enough RAM to play uh, Ultima Five or whatever it is. Yeah, it's. Do you have Sound Blaster? What version of Sound Blaster do you have? Yeah, yeah. What what did Warcraft Two do in the setup? The whole sound called works perfectly. Yeah, so you have to change your from two hundred and fifty six <laughs> colors to sixteen colors to play Operation Tsunami on floppy disk. Uh, right, yeah. Speed up the loading times, all that stuff. Yeah, so so quite quite a different world. So dipping into that, that's been interesting. But um, 
yeah, I would say it's more like a coffee table book, but it's from a UK publisher, and uh, I'll be excited to. Um, it's it's been fun to write. It's been challenging, but you know, I'm, I'll be excited to be done with that. I'm just sort of heads down, uh, finishing it, and then I never want to see another Star Trek thing again for some time, mm-hmm. just to decompress. Um, uh, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at crabnebula1914. Um, I've plugged my short film before. I'm going to do it again. Uh, I made a short film called burnt by the sun not to be confused with the uh russian film of the same name from 1994 um but yeah no it's the original short film that i uh wrote starred directed edited i did everything um and it's just as of this morning got into its 10th festival as an award winner uh mm. 13th festival all day so out of 13 10 are award winners one's an honorable mention one's a uh finalist and one's a something else i forget I think it's just selected. So have you yeah. tried submitting to international film festivals? Um, I tried to get into the Cannes Indie Short Awards and I got turned down. But um, they are lost. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I yeah. think so. The international ones I got into were Lightbox, uh, Cineplay, Movie Play, uh, Indie Fair, Film Nest, and Delta International Film Festivals. Um, some of these I'm beginning to wonder are just like maybe they're tax shelters. <laughs> <laughs> sure there, there's you know what stuff mean online and everything there's a lot more of them than there used to be um some of them are through universities some of the, yeah yeah so i mean that, that's but yeah very cool We're, what's the youtube channel um you can find on my youtube channel the trailer project um i also have some other experimental films that i've been making up there and also trailer commentaries which is how this all really kind of got started so yeah check it out very cool and thrasher what about you you can follow me on Instagram at WT2Art. Very good. So uh, for SequelCast 2, next, uh, and we're also part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Uh, so oh, yeah. uh, for, for SequelCast uh, 2, you know, you can get past episodes SequelCast2.com. And uh, we have a Twitter as well, SequelCast, at SequelCast2. But it really just sort of has links to episodes of the show. So um, for SequelCast2, uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. This is Alex. Saying. You named her after the Loch Ness Monster? Hey, I'm Jacob, and I uh, just want to let everyone know uh, me and Grover Cleveland got a few things in common and that we chose our brides at infancy. Oh! Oh, oh look, uh, <laughs> Renesmee, I threw you into the ocean, and it turns out you got uh, some dorsal fins, so actually you are the Loch Ness, part Loch Ness Monster. It's, a, it's like oh. the Jerry Springer. Like, you are the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> like, yeah, open up the envelope. She and the Loch Ness Monster have a forbidden romance. Yeah, the uh, the the envelope with the test results has, like, the, the smell of, like, salt water to it. Or I guess not because it's a lake, right? It wouldn't be salt water. But it's, it smells like an Irish bog, Scottish bog. Dear listeners, well, please write a fan fiction between Jacob and the Loch Ness Monster. I think I'm